Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. My name is Michael Lilienthal, and I am your host for this special episode, and here is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hi, I'm Ethan Bartlett. That you are. And like I said, this is a special, special episode with a special, special guest named Ethan Bartlett, and this special episode is all about homework we're doing your homework um uh it's not a homework assignment that anyone particularly assigned to us but we are going to be analyzing with very serious very very sincere and honest theories and interpretations of the text of the book the Lord of the Flies, or not The Lord of the Flies, just Lord of the Flies, Lord of the Flies. by William Golding. Yeah, this is something that we've done at least once or twice before, um, mm-hmm. is just taking a text that is very commonly assigned either, I would say, like, freshman in college literature courses, or in, like, mm-hmm. high school, maybe AP courses, or maybe, like, junior, senior in high school literature courses i think lord of the flies may be falling out of favor just in the last few years but i think certainly Mm -hmm. anyone um our age or older it would very likely have experienced it in uh encountered it at least in uh classes like that um and i would i would right i'm not super in touch with what the the current like curriculum for american ap lit or college coursework is but i would be surprised if there weren't some classrooms still teaching this at sort of a sort of that introductory level or basic level or whatever. Right, right. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, Ethan. Do you were you assigned to read this in school, and if so, when? And I was remember. never assigned to read this in school. Um, oh, okay. I, I mean, I was homeschooled, so like. My experiences that way are somewhat non-standard. I mean, my mom kind of designed our curriculum to parallel sort of a standard public school curriculum in a Mm. lot of ways. But being that I was a child who at age 16, 17 was reading James Joyce and Joseph Conrad and, um, yeah, was a big nerd. Um, It's just a good thing there's no one else on this call who... I don't know, for example, wrote a full feature-length imitation of uh, T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock <laughs> at around the same age. Um, no, who would Because otherwise they would also be a nerd, but too bad it's only me. <laughs> anyway, the, the yeah. point I was making is that, like, my mom kind of let me largely self-direct uh, my, own, my own reading, um, she, there were certain things she assigned me and she made sure I had some curriculum that was like, you know, this type of stuff you'd learn in an AP lit classroom as far as analysis and writing and, and looking at theme and doing papers and all that stuff. But, um, she did either steer me away or allow me to steer myself away from like just a few of the things that a lot of people would read in classrooms, like. I think she thought of the book The Catcher in the Rye as the book that killed John Lennon and never made me um, read it. And then when I did read it, mm. I thought of it as the book that kept Franny and Zoe and actually good J.D. Salinger novel out of classrooms. So, like, 
um, parallel conclusions, mm-hmm. if not parallel journeys. Um, so anyway, that's a, a, a roundabout way of saying I did not read Lord of the Flies, but don't take my experience as necessarily being like typical of anyone who went to sort of American public or even private school. Sure. Did you read Lord of the Flies, Michael, sure. when you were in school at any point? Yes, I was a sophomore in high school in um, honors English, uh, and we were assigned to read it uh, in that that class. My teacher, Mrs. Roll, <laughs> um, assigned it to us. Um, yep. It was the same year we read the abridged form of The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay, to be fair, and... as soon as you say abridged, my hackles do go up. But like yep. having read the yep. not abridged form of that novel, like you guys, you guys right. didn't re- need to read fifteen chapters of him in prison. Like of no. all the books to abridge, that's <laughs> like, one that like I have a harder time sort of objecting to. I guess. So, so you know, to to qualify myself as a nerd, and this is not the book we're talking about, the kind of Monte Cristo. But when I when I discovered that it was abridged. Which didn't take me long because it said it right there on the cover. So it only um, took you like two or three weeks worth of, of having it and reading it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was very chagrined and decided I needed to read the full <laughs> version. So as soon as I could, I took my uh, meager earnings from working uh, below minimum wage at the Dairy Queen in town and went to Barnes Noble and bought the Penguin Classics edition of The Count of Monte Cristo and then read it almost immediately i think i read it the summer after sophomore year so to, to make up so that for i could what get you the full thing <laughs> to make to make up for it because i was and, deprived and now you're you're know, right the, the public school system had failed me <laughs> um you're right that this is not the book we're talking about but i now have to know <laughs> did you uh did you feel that like having read the full version that like you had given yourself an experience that was like superior to like did you feel did, did the did the are you asking if i felt superior to those around well, me no because the answer is i was gonna yes. say i'm not asking that because <laughs> you and i were very were and are very similar personalities and i know how i felt all the time especially as far as reading and writing <laughs> went when i was 16 or so and so i wasn't going to ask that what i specifically i want to know if being honest with yourself so you had hyped up mm-hmm. the experience of reading the non-abridged count of monte cristo to yourself right like mm, right like this had even if it was all in your own brain like you had um uh given yourself like a hype campaign like a movie does um Right. Did the experience of reading the unabridged Count of Monte Cristo did it live up to that internal hype campaign? Well, here's what I'll say about that. I what I remember from the the unit on the book in class. All I remember from that unit is watching the terrible film adaptation sure. of the book in class. I don't remember reading it. I remember reading the unabridged version. Okay, well, that's... And I remember thoroughly enjoying it. Okay, okay, so that's... That's, a... that's something. I was going to call you out for the fact that you remember reading it not being the same as remembering enjoying it. And I was going <laughs> to ask if you remembered reading it because 
just the section where he's in prison, as I recall, which is like 5% of the plot, does take up an amount of the novel right. that's the same as like some entire 21st century novels start to finish. Um, yes. But yes. you you kind of you kind of <laughs> preempted me on that one. By the way, uh before I forget, where I had been going before I I forgot um regarding <laughs> my whole thing about homeschooling and and getting to skip certain certain books is that I think my mother I don't think she actively discouraged me from reading Lord of the Flies, but I think she maybe tacitly let me not read it because she thought of it as, you know, sort of the book where boys kill each other and it was, and it being very sad and stuff, which is, Mm -hmm. as we'll get into before, hopefully too long, um, a deeply incorrect, the widespread perception of this book. Um, But yeah, I think, so I think I didn't read it. I think I read it like a summer between college years like i i did read it and i think i read a critical edition that had you know the same amount of pages devoted to like essays about the book as it did the length of the text itself um so i did read it and i am thoroughly qualified to discuss it um regardless of the fact that this was approximately 15 years ago um but my memory is is flawless um as anyone who has listened to any other episode of the mm-hmm. show will uh know so anyway right yes just wanted to I, I i realized i had not quite and got quite gotten to the end of that thought so here we are well that's fair good good um before we before we get into discussing the book itself and uh, sharing the uh, the theses that we have on it. Uh, Ethan, what are you drinking? Um, that is a great question, Michael. Uh, I am drinking a bottle that I actually picked up today. Um, because today Ooh. was a day off for me, and a thing I do on my day off is just kind of just kind of wander around southern Wisconsin sometimes. and um, Sometimes it's just hmm. about the drive, sometimes it's about the destination. But today I ended up at... The Wollersheim Winery and Distillery, um, which Ooh. I would say is a place that's like regionally famous. Like, it's definitely famous in you know Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Illinois. I don't know that it has much wider spread fame than that. All yeah, the all, the, all of the real states. Um, <laughs> it's you know it's it, it, there's there's sort of a an explosion in the last ten years or so of like micro distilleries and and local wine making and, and that kind of thing. Um Wollersheim is like predates that uh explosion by a couple decades, so they're kind of kind of an established um one of those. Um and what I picked up today is a bottle that I believe is only available at their site. So they, you know, they distribute to liquor stores, um, Mm. certainly in the upper Midwest. I don't know how far their reach goes beyond that. Um, they'll, they'll distribute both their liquor and their wine. Um, but, uh, this bottle, I think you have to buy on site. I could be wrong about that, but I usually don't see this collection on other shelves. Um, it's something they've been Mm. doing for several years called their curiosity collection. And they're just different, like, um the only other one i've had from it i think was their curiosity collection number six which was like 
a bourbon with a super high corn um element to its to its mash bill uh more or less making it like a corn whiskey um uh whereas bourbon usually i think has a much higher percentage of barley and malt um i'm reaching far outside of my already very minimal expertise anyway um the one i picked up today is woolersheim distillery curiosity collection number eight vintage red dress um it is a rye whiskey finished in Mm. port barrels and left uh in those port barrels for about six years um so the the mash bill is two-thirds rye uh, about 20 percent corn and 12 percent malt which is um sort of a typical rye whiskey mash bill i want to say um but they've aged it in their own red port barrels, which I think is where the um, the red dress part comes in. Um, apparently, it's called Vintage mm-hmm. Red Dress because they had an earlier uh, release that was essentially the same the same recipe, but only aged for two years in port barrels. That was just called Red Dress or like New Red Dress or something to denote that it was like a younger whiskey. Um, this one being vintage red dress to denote that it's an older one. Uh, as as rise go, like six years is like the top end of average, I think, for for aging. Um, so I'm just uh, I'm just sipping on that because it was you know my new uh, my new toy, my new whiskey toy. Um, yeah, Yum. what are you drinking, Michael? Uh, I have made myself a Manhattan. The uh, whiskey base is the proper mm. number 12 Irish whiskey. Um, and uh, I, I like uh, dry vermouth. Most Manhattans, I think, call for a sweet vermouth. That's but interesting. I like, a, I like it dry. Yeah, the standard recipe for Manhattan um, would be sweet vermouth. But I think Irish whiskey mm-hmm. itself tends to be a little sweeter and a little lighter. Um, so I can yeah. see a dry vermouth potentially working really well. Um Sounds super interesting. I also think mm-hmm. that they're, you know, in the way that like cocktails have multiple names or multiple cocktails have the same name, I think there is a specific name for a Manhattan with dry vermouth instead of sweet vermouth, but I don't know what it oh. is off the top of my head. It's also just a good guess because it's like cocktail history is so long and fond of its very, sure. very specific names that, you know, there's probably a name for it if I had to guess. Um. Right, and you know you can assign names to whatever you want, and different names get assigned to yeah. different things at different times, and different people have Which is different names all for different like things. Why... Same things so. Th- that's the thing that cocktails historians get driven crazy by. I think just the fact that anyone can just assign any name <laughs> to it. anything. All all the things you just said, because then it's like, well, you know, you're going back through archives yep. and and menus and things. It's like, well, these guys here called this this. We have no idea if it's actually the recipe we know of as this, or if it's something completely different, you know, stuff like that. Um, but no, that sounds right. sounds delicious. It is. It's quite tasty. So. Well, with that, um, since this is a special, there are no rules, um, and uh, we are going to not be quite discussing this book thoroughly but instead uh as it is a homework special 
uh, we're going to provide you, gentle listener, with uh, a couple of theses that you can take and just hand in for your your yeah. literature homework. Uh, if you've been assigned this book to analyze it or write a paper on it or, or discuss it, just take these. Take these theories, uh, these theses, and uh, just just bring them into your and class. And Michael We're said this earlier, you, but so. I do just want to emphasize, like, you should present these theses very seriously and with a completely straight face. Like, um, these are very... Like, I know in some, yes. you know, in some episodes of this show, like, we take on sort of a jocular tone. We sometimes say sarcastic things, but, like... Mm-hmm. This is us just, again, like Michael just said, doing your homework for you. We have, yeah, we, and, and we're, as part of that service, service, we have put together some of the so. best available interpretations of this book. Um, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, you don't, you know, don't worry about plagiarism or anything like that. You, you know, just like set up the podcast speaker next to your Word document and, Turn on the the speech to text mechanism and just put your name at the top, hand it in, and you're good to go. It's fine. It's easy. We've taken care of it for you. Um, so as as we begin to to discuss this here, Ethan, I know there aren't any rules, but l'chaim. Uh, Slancha. Uh, now, Ethan, uh, I'll give you the uh, prerogative as the the guest. Would you like to share? Your interpretation of Lord of the Flies. Yeah, I would. And I alluded earlier to, um, you know, my mother's, uh, again, very common but mistaken belief that this is a violent book about, you know, boys doing violence to each other and ultimately killing Mm. each other and the rules of civilization being stripped away and um, the total depravity of man um, and all of that. Now, how could I possibly say that, you might ask, because, um, you know, this is, this is obviously, like, literally, uh, uh, um, you know, a thing that, that happens is, is a group of boys beats another boy to death, right? Like, how could I say that that this isn't about that? Well, and first I want to, I want to preface this by saying what this is absolutely not, which is... Um, there's a, there's a, it gets brought up in like some clickbait article for every novelistic property, um, of any kind that tells any kind of story with a group of characters or, and not even novelistic, like it gets brought up about movies and TV shows and stuff too. And I think we've thoroughly, um, trashed it on this show before, but this is not where, you know, the main character, maybe, maybe, uh, uh, Ralph or or um, whatever like Ralph is not a patient in a mental institute and the other boys are not his fellow mm, patients mm-hmm. and the um, you know the the command the ship commander at the end is not the doctor or whatever like the that's that interpretation is always bad like that's i mean it's always, always. bad like that's that's like and it's mm-hmm. it's bad because it's so easy because it's just like you can just sort of say like well i don't believe that harry potter's perceiving reality correctly and then as soon as you do that it's like you know whatever no what this book clearly is though right. and um keep in mind that this book came out in 1954 
Um, this book is clearly the inspiration for uh, the Pixar movie Inside Out. Um, and and you know before before like you know that might sound ridiculous on the face of it, but like keep in mind like Pixar has taken like some surprising you know sources for its its children's movies before, right? Like um, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, right. uh, Oh man, what's the the one that just came out a couple years ago? Um, man, I gotta. Um, Encanto, yes, that, thank uh... you. Um, Encanto oh, okay. is the one I was thinking of. Yeah, Encanto, uh, uh, and this is legitimately <coughs> true. Like, not that everything I'm saying isn't legitimately true, but like, Encanto clearly took right. its inspiration from like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel, like a, like a, you know, mm-hmm. uh, South American neo, not, uh, South American, um, like, uh, what's the term? Magic realist, uh, uh, yeah. you know, novel about politics for adults. Like, um, you right. know, the, the movie Cars was based on a 1960s Steve McQueen movie. Um, uh the the movie up is clearly based on king lear based on how much it makes me weep 15 minutes in like you know pixar yeah. pixar takes its inspirations from um surprising sources which you know goes back to disney taking uh the inspiration for films like lion king one and a half from the film rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead um or from the play mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. um yeah, you know, so like this is a there's a history here. Um but clearly and like you know, I think this is just pretty obvious from the text once you know it's in there. Clearly this uh, this whole thing and it's not a dream because after Alice in Wonderland came out like um the whole idea of they woke up and it's just a dream like that's also almost as played out as the the whole they're all patients in a mental institution thing. No. This right. is a live, real-time description of all of the different um, uh, Freudian and Jungian forces at work in the head of a single young boy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, John Donne said, no man is an island, but the man's brain is an island floating in a sea of amniotic fluid. Um, and... I don't listen don't question me on science I did my master's in English but that makes me also qualified to talk about all other topics that involve words and science does um <laughs> can't can't so, argue with that yeah anyway um so like the, you have the the literary background of of the island as like a brain because right because it's like there's stuff going on here but it's c- cut off from sort of the rest of the world um and you know, I obviously don't have to go into like the the idea that like Ralph is the id and and Piggy is the super ego or um Jack is is a uh, uh one of the other Freudian terms that I've forgotten. Like that would be too too sort of detailed and like it's controversial, you know, which ones are which I think, but um uh, you know, and, and, and that's interpretive, so you can kind of decide which, which of which of those corresponds to which of Freud's sort of um, delineations of 
the um the workings of the brain the workings of the psyche um the i actually though i think that the more important um aspect of this interpretation is when the boys sort of form two tribes right they they uh end up sort mm. of having having these rival mm-hmm. tribes um and i think that represents a very important part in uh a sort of childhood development like this is obviously um you know you know uh uh psychologists have talked about the the beginnings of self-awareness as a sort of fall from innocence right like when when you're three four or five or whatever and you just start to be sort of aware of yourself as a person with needs and desires and and wants and of the idea that there are like other persons out there this this separation occurs um and that's obviously represented by the plane crash at the beginning so the first stages of this Mm. this book like the first part of um of inside out you know represent all of these very individualistic uh very isolated um emotions and and drives and impulses sort of sort of running around by themselves trying to form some sort of coherent uh structure in the face of this catastrophe this this fall into uh Mm -hmm. self-awareness um so when the when the boys split into different tribes it represents sort of the um uh the urge on the one hand within a within a boy um to sort of grow up right like the the one tribe represents represents um, mm. um duty or maturation yeah responsibility maturation and the other tribe just wants to be a kid right like the other tribe just mm-hmm. they it's it's the urge to just stay a child and you know in, in different different kids these urges sort of manifest in different ways and and one wins out over the other um but uh the what this represents, and because you know all of this takes place on the backdrop of World War II, the the um, kids are being evacuated at the beginning. That's key here, right? Um, mm-hmm. And we'll we'll get to that a little bit later. But um, I think that what all of all of what's kind of going on here is um, uh, this this tug of war between the the urge towards maturation, towards responsibility, and the urge towards staying a child, like you know. Mm. Uh, uh often represented externally by you know having a a stuffed animal or a blanket or something that um you know you are meant to give up at a certain point but you don't want to or something um but what i think mm-hmm. i think is very important here is that uh uh the the key the key bit is when the um jack and the and the rebel band of boys um when they go on their raid to steal piggy's glasses because i think Mm. that this represents and like you know william golding was not interested in making sort of a sort of a happy peppy kids kids movie any more than or kids you know plot any more than uh gabriel garcia marquez was interested in houses that get up and dance and sing in the south american countryside right um so what this raid represents is that urge to stay a child sometimes also wants some of the the boons of adulthood right so um 
Mm-hmm. These these this this regressive faction tries to steal the the one object introduced into the story that represents sort of a, a you know a maturation right you 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 mature you get older your eyes degenerate you need glasses but those glasses obviously are a, are a are a tool so this raid represents the the childish side of the psyche coming and trying to steal things from the adult side while still remaining childish um Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that, you know, uh, uh, kicks off the action that, that sort of ends up being the, the climax or the sort of uh, almost denied climax of the book. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, and then, of course, we have the, the famous twist ending where this chaos, this, this, you know, they've beaten one boy to death, albeit accidentally. Um Right. And and that of course represents the fact that of these two sides, you know, if they don't find a way to reintegrate with each other, that like one of them them ends up winning and ends up sort of ousting the other. So it's mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. It's it's violence, but it's violence within a psyche that I think people don't understand. Right. And so then then this the you know this culminates in this this chaotic scene that ends up with this this reversal where they all fall at this British officer's feet who dresses them down and, and you know, uh, 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 sort of takes this, this primal chaotic scene and reverts it back to the civilization that they came from and quickly um, uh, degenerated from, right? Um, right. And I think, and I think the, um, uh, the phrase end of innocence comes up a lot or comes up on the last page of the book. And um, Mm -hmm. uh, the officer turns to stare at his cruiser waiting offshore. Now the cruiser of course represents um, the movement of all of these boys who of course represent an entire human brain into a world of warfare and of adulthood. Right. Um, Mm. And, and the, the mourning for the end of innocence um, is the idea that this 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 boy this this person whose brain you know the everything on this island sort of represents um, is now realizing that the you know adulthood will happen whether you like it or not that's simply the the progress of time and of aging um, and he's he's realizing suddenly that he had a chance to fully integrate his childhood brain and preserve both the, the trend toward maturation and the joy of, of childhood. And he's essentially messed that up. And now he has to go into adulthood um, without any kind of innocence. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that has to do with, you know, a lot of these boys getting drafted into the army at, at young ages, you know, the, the overarching theme of, of world war two going on, but, um, you know, but so essentially what did, what Pixar did was pick up on this idea and, you know, kind of as again, they did with, with Encanto or with like golden age science fiction and in, in WALL-E, like they kind of just, just, uh, reshaped it and reformed it, um, into a story that, that they could tell to kids without, you know, hopefully traumatizing them or implying that it would be very easy for them to be persuaded to beat one of their classmates to death with a conch, conch shell. Um, mm-hmm. So I may have missed one or two things there, Michael, but I think that's the general outline of, of my interpretation of this book. Um, 
I'd welcome Very, any, I see, any comments I see. or questions. Um, otherwise. Um, no, I think, you know, it's it's a very fascinating uh, interpretation and, and theory. And I think you're, you're on to something here, that there's something um, really integral to human nature, something prototypical going on in this in this book. But uh, here's what I'm going to say. I, I don't think you go far enough. And here's where I think your interpretation um, uh, doesn't doesn't reach all okay. the way into what this book is and actually just to be doing. Clear, and I'm not going to go into mine okay. quite yet. I, I want to see. I was just yeah, going to say, ahead. I thought you were kind of segueing into yours. And I was wanting to confirm that with yours, we are not going to end up with it all being just a dream or we're in, oh, a, of course in not. a psych ward of some kind. Because I, I would quit the podcast. No, okay. No. Yes. No, no, that's we, we've established very clearly in numerous places yeah, that that's lazy. Uh, <laughs> and we won't stand for that. We won't sit. For um, it we won't sit for it. No. Okay. Um, we'll storm out for it. <laughs> that's what we'll do. We will take our toys and go home. <laughs> and go home, yes. Um, okay, no, okay. So, what, but no, you, you're, you're onto something with this, this idea, and Freud makes the same um, sort of uh, well-intentioned but short-sighted insight that wow. you've okay. made, Ethan. Um, I'm going to ignore um, the, like, borderline <laughs> insult there to just point out that, like, I don't necessarily agree with Freud's <laughs> theories. I just think that William Golding is using them here um, in a similar... Oh, yes. I, I, I'm not saying you're the same as Freud by any stretch of the imagination. Well, goodness, but because... insofar as you are the same as Freud, you've made the same short-sighted <laughs> mistake. I'm going to just let you have this because it was so deftly done that I don't even feel like defending myself. <laughs> Um, now, now the, the understanding, of course, but behind all of this, and, and I think Jung, uh, also goes a little bit further with this, uh, also, that the, these characters that are innate within a person's own psyche have their model in myths, so to speak, and... From the the title of the book, Lord of the Flies, we have access to a certain myth. And Ethan, are you aware of, of what that myth um, is? I The only connection I know of, and I regret that I didn't work this in because it is integral to sort of the my uh, extremely good and valid interpretation. Thank you very much. Um <laughs> But is the idea, is, is the connection between Lord of the Flies being a literal translation translation of the name Beelzebub from the Old Testament? Correct, yes. Um, which, Beelzebub, um, and I'm trying to think of the, the best order to, to take this in, because there, there are numerous uh, facets to this uh, brilliantly crafted jewel that William Golding has, has given to us. Um, and Beelzebub is a refashioning of a name. It is, it's, it's a joke 
name because Beelzebub does literally mean Lord of the Flies, and Zebub is the the Hebrew word for flies, um, and so it's Baal of the Flies, Lord of the Flies, um, which is it, it's a joke because the the Hebrews heard the name uh, of a a local idol. Um, in, uh, in the area called Ekron, um, whose name was Baal-zebul, uh, or Beelzebul, um, which means, uh, Lord of the Land. And they said, so his name is Baal-zebub, his name is Lord of the Flies. It, it's, you know, the playground bully tactic, um, of, of hearing a person's name and then, you know, making a, a play on, on that name in order to insult them. And, you know, that's what the, the Hebrews did with Beelzebul, uh, turning it into Beelzebub and saying, oh, he's Lord of the Flies, you know, he's, he's a dung heap god, um, is, is what they were saying about that. So that's where Lord of the Flies comes in. And that's, that's really kind of the key by, by calling it Lord of the Flies and accessing that name specifically of Beelzebub, uh, which is the altered name. We're we're getting a hint here that William Golding is is showing us that some of the other names that are in this book are in fact altered to fit uh, our conception of the setting a little bit easier. In fact, this is not a reference backwards. Looking at um, where where in the text of the book looks back at uh, the uh, the character of Beelzebub. Uh, but in fact, this is the inception of that character of Beelzebul. This is the origin myth uh, for that culture. And, uh, you know, you might object by saying things like, well, it talks about the British. Well, that's, you know, again, one of the names that, that comes up here. And it's just inserted. The names the names are not important so in you're... this text. Uh, in, and you might object to seeing things like the technology of the airplanes or or these cruise liners and things. But as you would know from something like Disney's Atlantis, the ancient civilization of Atlantis had advanced technology like this. And so what's going on in this text is the fall of Atlantis and the rise of the, the corrupted cultures that came out of it, such as ancient Babylon, the, uh, the ancient... Um, uh, Philistines and, and so on and so forth, where Beelzebul is one of their gods. And so here we have these, these young boys who crashed in an Atlantean aircraft on this island, crafted this worship of the, the pig head god of Beelzebub or Beelzebul, and then took that back with them when they were rescued into this declining civilization uh, of Atlantis. Um, I'm trying to decide, even though you insulted my interpretation, whether it's too mean to <laughs> say that you're giving off big L. Ron a Hubbard energy, right? <laughs> you know that's that's another one of those things where l ron hubbard you know he just didn't go far enough <laughs> i frankly i do disagree with him on many things i don't i think that that statement can't be true about him <laughs> 
And like I, oh, to be fair. clear, like whether I'm I'm talking sarcastically, as I obviously have not been doing this entire episode, or on any other level, like I I cannot be clear enough that I think Elron Hubbard is a piece of a word we don't say on this podcast because it's a family show. But I think the idea <laughs> that he had not pushed something far enough <laughs> could not be true. Well, uh, we can agree to disagree. I was going to say, I mean, this could become one of our classic disagreements that we have tons of to uh, satisfy um, longtime super fan Matt Ryan. But right. um, yeah, I mean, we we can leave it there. I'm just I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. We'll just we'll we'll we disagree about Elrond. <laughs> well, if you're if that's a sentence you're comfortable leaving on the public record, um, we can we can move on as as much or as little as you like. Let's, let's move on. In any case, <laughs> now you. <laughs> now is this it? Is you, this you the made theory, a statement, or is, or is there more? Are you just play setting? Well, I, I do want to touch on a couple of a couple of things here, um, perhaps in the text and and certainly um, uh, extra textual evidence as well. Um, but uh, first, I want to I want to note that you said something about how um, the the rules of civilization were being stripped away in this text, and you know it, it's it, it's true to an extent, but also at the same time there are rules of civilization being created with. Uh, these uh, totems like the the conch shell and this uh, this ritual murder of of the god, which as as you know in the in ancient Mesopotamia the the Baal god was a a god of the the harvest and um, well and and the rains and and such and so he was a seasonal god similar to uh, um, Persephone or Demeter and and such with this this. Uh, attitude of of dying and rising and and such Demeter, i hardly know her <laughs> um and so th- there's that attitude of of creation and destruction being united together in here in this sort of warfare uh symbolism and you know you have a key to that too where when um when the uh the uh this commanding officer comes onto the beach um and talks about what the boys are are doing here and he says oh fun and games um and and it is you know just like uh, the plays of of ancient greece they were play but they were also uh something very ritual and and true and so this this same ritual is going on and um there there's the attitude of of fertility within this as well and and you see that in some of the behavior of the the boys with the with the pig that they've slaughtered and and such and so yes uh, the rules of civilization are being stripped away but also recreated in here now there there's also an interesting uh extra text extra textual source that i want to i want to reference just briefly here um I, I mentioned how i had read this book uh in my sophomore sophomore english class in my junior English class, my teacher had us analyze a work of poetry um, that I want to uh, share just a few lines of that I think give a, a reference to this. And these are lines of poetry um, uh, from the poem Comfort Eagle by Cake. Your, your junior year <laughs> English teacher had you do this poem. 
Yes. Okay. <laughs> Comfort Eagle sure. by Cake. I mean, yes. Cake is one of our I... great modern uh, sources of poetry, so I have no questions it's about true. that. It's true. And yes, I am dead serious. She had us analyze this poem. That's amazing. This song. Honestly. Um, and this, you know, this keys into uh, the the attitude of, of the timing of this, the, the, the temporal setting, if you will, of the text that seems a little ambiguous. Uh, and also the idea that this is also the founding of a religion uh, within this ancient world. Uh, now, Comfort Eagle uh, by Cake begins, we are building a religion. We are building it bigger. The first two two lines there that uh, this, this is the crafting of, of a religion here. And then uh, several stanzas later, it says, now today is tomorrow and tomorrow today and yesterday is weaving in and out and... Here's here's a key passage. And the fluffy white lines that the airplane leaves behind are drifting right in front of the waning of the moon. So you get this sort of seasonal aspect that's that's keyed into with the, the airplane that crashes at the beginning of this text uh, as the, the beginning um, sort of uh, scar, which is is keyed into the scar in the in the jungle uh, that uh, begins the building of the religion. Um, so cake was, was keyed into this and, um, it was, uh, illuminated to me in my, my high school career by, by seeing these in, uh, sequential years in that way. Um, yeah. So, uh, any, any questions you have on, on this uh, interpretation here, Ethan? Oh, absolutely not. It seems, you know, completely clear and, uh, straightforward. Honestly, I'm shocked that I missed it. Um, either then or now honestly the atlantis connection was was so clear to me i'm i'm shocked you missed it too well especially because i'm pretty sure i'm the person who uh perhaps first and i could be wrong about this but i think i might be the person who perhaps first introduced you to some of those concepts about uh uh the idea that there might be a connection between ancient uh religions that were enemies of the hebrew people coming out of some kind of atlantis complex um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I can't believe you, you that, and Disney. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the two great <laughs> teachers of our time, um, right. <laughs> me, me and, and the Walt Disney corporation. Um, yeah, no. So I'm, I'm shocked that having taught you that I completely missed it. I guess the only question I do have here yes. is, is sort of, and not to like, I, I hope I'm not being too pedantic or anything, but, um, the transition that you made from my theory to your theory, you said that my mm, little yes. theory didn't go quite far enough, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and that your which and and I'm, I admit I'm extrapolating, so you can correct me if I've extrapolated incorrectly, but um, it does imply that your theory somehow comes out of my theory or builds on my theory that that. I maybe got us, you know, 25% of the way along the train tracks and you had to take us the other 75%, all of which I'm comfortable with. I just want to know if you can make it more explicit, the connection between the two or how mine sort of nests in yours such that you felt the need to sort of uh, belittle me and, and Sigmund Freud, two of the greatest minds of the 20th century. 
Yes, yes, thank you. I, I, I did, I, I, I acknowledge I failed to round that out completely here. And, and you're right, my theory builds on your theory in the sense that uh, when you re reverse engineer something, you build on something. It, it goes backwards. In, in fact, uh, your theory comes out of mine um, because uh, the, the characters in this, in this text... Uh, that uh, have created this religion, like in any any myth, also uh, become uh, prototypes or or um, um, what's the word I'm I'm looking for? They they are they are uh, archetypes. Yes, thank you. Archetypes of of elements of the human psyche, and so therefore, because these archetypes are there in this ancient founding of of this religion then they do take up residence in the mind of say a single schoolboy in uh i have to Great i have to say that archetypes um uh is a very appropriate word to go in your version of the theory or your your theory in mm. the sense that you like i relied very heavily on freud a thinker i clearly understand at a very deep level um and couldn't mm -hmm. not remember more than two phrases from um <laughs> but where, whereas uh your theory and we gentle listener did not like pre-coordinate this at all your theory relied quite heavily on jung um and especially as regards how your theory and my theory dovetail with each other as it were right um mm -hmm. so uh that is very interesting. I do want to call you out on one more thing, though, and this just occurred to me as you were answering mm -hmm. the last question that I had. Um, so forgive me, but um, I, while you were answering that question, it occurred to me that you've used the phrase like backwards and forwards in multiple connections multiple times, and I'm not sure that they all yes. make sense. Um, and maybe they do, and I'm just wrong, which is quite possible, or maybe... Yeah, maybe you know there's Most something likely. that you maybe could have explained more for dullards like me um and our and our freudian analyses um not that i'm bitter uh but you know but i, I just that's that's all that's all to the side or or what led me to just wanting to clarify you do think that this book takes place in the distant past Yes. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so you think you think that in fact you you almost have implied, and again, forgive me if I'm extrapolating incorrectly, um, but you've almost implied, sort of a, a millennia or even eon spanning timeline of this book, in order to make both of our theories sort of correct and and you know dovetailing versions of each other because. And you said that these archetypes live in the mind of a British schoolboy. So sure. um, to make my theory make sense where I have foolishly, um, I admit now, foolishly, you know, assumed at face value the, the World War II setting um, mm -hmm. that I have, uh, 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 you know, a a taken that as, as the baseline. So... You, you've you've essentially implied that this book takes place both in the distant past and during World War II in the mind of a British schoolboy. 
Um, well, in the sense that, uh, you know, any ancient myth also is currently taking place in the mind of modern civilization sure, sure, and, but, and any human being. Yeah. But you have implied that that's in the text, and I don't disagree with you. Um, oh, sure. But it, it just, like, the analogy, the only analogy that I could think of was that it it uh, uh, feels very much like... 2001 a space odyssey um <laughs> when in a single cut stanley kubrick has the gall to span like 15,000 years of human development or whatever where um you know these these cave people uh discover this obelisk that somehow opens their mind and advances civilization and one of them tosses a bone up into the air in an ecstasy of celebration and then that bone is, you know, sort of zoomed in on, and then there's an instant cut to a space station that that exists in the future of Kubrick's, you know, 1970s right. um, era. So it, it spans across these however many thousand years of of human civilization. That's kind of what you've done um, in sort of making our interpretations work together. And to be clear, I think this is all very. Now that you pointed out, especially, I think this is all very obviously in the text, like. Um, of course. I don't have any, any questions or any... I'm not trying to undermine your interpretation, but it's no. just... Well, just thank a, you for acknowledging my brilliance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and here's 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 where I'll, I'll solidify a little bit of that, and hopefully this clarifies things a little bit, too. I what, I what I'm saying is that William Golding did not invent this story. In fact, William Golding is perhaps translating some ancient... Babylonian or Syrophoenician texts that we don't have access to, but has changed the names uh, and is is making them uh, applicable to a 20th century audience. Um, uh, either he's translating or he's retelling uh, yeah. uh, and the the ancient myth in that way. And in that sense, where where any myth is retold or or any story is retold, it is a, a story that exists within the the psyche of uh those who span those millennia yeah and i have i have no questions about that all right very good i'm glad we're clear <laughs> um well anything else on uh lord of the flies by william golding any any other uh no really nothing comes to mind uh i'm i'm all set to go reread this text yet again and marvel at your your brilliance and wonder at my own shame of not having realized mm -hmm, yes. that this is you know something even as basic as this not being a william golding original um composition and and it seems right extremely obvious to me now but yes as as it should well very good uh thank you ethan and uh thank you gentle listener for uh for listening along um, I, I, like we say, this is uh, one of our homework specials in which we very seriously do your homework for you, and so take these interpretations uh, and uh, hand them in to your English teachers, English professors, and uh, just put your name to them and reap the benefits. Make sure to mention, um, mention Atlantis as much as possible. Definitely, definitely, yes, of course. And if you like, um, if you uh, you know, if you need some background on Atlantis, just Google Atlantis. Or, like, my favorite phrase to Google mm -hmm. is proof that Atlantis was real. Um, 
And I'm just mm-hmm. like, again, as far as back, I'm doing even more of your homework for you, gentle listener. So you're welcome. But like, if if you Google that phrase, every single website you find will be f- completely full of completely credible, um, well sourced, well researched, uh, non nonsense information. Or, you know, if you want to make the job easy for yourself and, and let someone else do the research for you, just watch Disney's 2001 classic Atlantis, The Lost Empire, starring Michael J. Fox. Oh, and it came out in 2001, which is also the name of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Like, the dots all connect, gentle listener. This is... They're, they're yeah. there. They're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and if you have any questions about this this or, or any of our episodes, uh, you can reach us at tapestryradio.org. Go to the contact section there and put Scotch Talk in the subject line so that we know uh, what, your, what your query is in regards to. Uh, or on Twitter, if that still exists, you can find us at Room with Scotch. Uh, or on Facebook, you can go to the Tapestry Radio Tap House. If you request to join, we will let you in unless you openly deny our claims. Um, and just like this homework, we will do any homework that you might submit to us. If you have a homework assignment from your English teachers that you'd like us to do for you, uh, go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. There's a form on that page for you to fill out uh, your, your homework submissions, and we'll, we'll do it for you. And just like this, you can turn that into your teachers and reap the benefits and don't let anyone Um, call you a witch when you transform your homework assignment into a teacher that's that's true that's true don't let them don't let them burn you at the stake or uh string you up or throw you into yeah call us we'll Um, we'll testify that you weigh as much as a duck yeah it's true we will uh ethan where can they find you um i don't know the the website that you said just now is probably good i've been I was never super like active on social media, and I've been even less active more recently, and that's okay. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, the same. I I am very 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 inactive. If you contact us on the website, I'll be more active with you that way. Wow, that's um, a way to say that. Perfect. Yep, it is. <laughs> Uh, if you like this show, check out the other shows in the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, Us Play Fiasco, the Actual Play RPG Fiasco Podcast, Freddy Goes to a Podcast, in which three grown men read and discuss the uh, 100-year-old children's book series, Freddy the Pig, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast. And with that, until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if the ancient myths of civilization that exist in our psyches make us. We, we love you, bye. Bye. <laughs> Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.